Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out tonight to the Contemporary Jewish Museum. My name is Gravity Goldberg. I am the manager of public programs. Tonight's program, The Influence of the Beats on, the, on Underground Publishing, um, is presented in conjunction with our exhibition, Beat Memories, the Photographs of Allen Ginsberg. And so tonight's program will look more at the, the legacy. And his legacy is really about freedom of speech, and which paves the way for the careers of all these panelists up here tonight. Uh, the, it created the possibility of underground publishing. So I'm, our uh, moderator, David Peskowitz, is going to introduce all the panelists, and I'm going to introduce David. He is the co-editor and managing partner of Boing Boing, a research director at Institute for the Future, and editor at large of Make. So thank you all. Great. Thank you all so much uh, uh, for coming this evening and for Gravity for working with me, actually, to, to develop this program. Um, this is actually a really um, important panel for me because there are people on this panel who had a big inspiration um, and I think changed my life in many ways, actually. And, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so I came at Beat Culture um, you know, as a teenager, like many people do, but I came at it through a, through a sort of a, a different angle, um, I think. Um, although many people here probably came at it from the same angle. I came at it through, actually, the idea of publishing an underground culture. Um, and I came at it through, um, you know, I was involved in, in sort of punk culture, but, but less interested in the music um, of the time. This was in the 80s. And more interested in the do-it-yourself ethic and people empowering themselves, um, you know, to make their own records, to, you know, make flyers and, and, you know, eventually desktop publishing. But before that, cut and paste and mail art and these kinds of things. So the culture surrounding punk was interesting to me beyond the or more so than, than even the music, which I kind of enjoyed, but I was always a goth at heart. Um, and that led me to um, some books that you can actually purchase over there. And those are the books from, from research published by, by V. Vale here. Um, it was through the research books that I learned about um, William S. Burroughs um, and through the research scenes before that and, and that was really the window into, into beat culture for me um, and into the culture of many other writers, J.G. Ballard and, and um, you know, industrial culture and Mark Pauline, Psyche TV and, and, and the like. Um, and so I was involved in zines, I was involved in computers um, and technology primarily because it was interesting to me as, as tools of empowerment for empowering the individual. Um, and I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, Midwest at the time, and um, you know, eventually uh, 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 the Bay Area called to me <laughs> in a way um, because I had gotten wind not only of, of the sort of underground avant-garde culture that was happening around research in that community, but um, the bubbling up of a cyber culture at the intersection of, of computers and technology and art and drugs and music um, at the early 90s. And, and I got wind of that through uh, a magazine called um, High Frontiers that eventually became Mondo 2000 that Are You Serious here edited. Um, and at the same time, um, all through that period, I was reading um, 
underground comics, I wasn't ever really very interested in superhero comics. I was interested in Zap and Arkham and, and these kinds of underground artists. Um, and interestingly, many of those, or most of them, or all of them, were all coming from one place, and that was coming from, from Last Gasp and Ron Turner, also in the Bay Area. And as someone who was interested in music and zine culture, um, of course, I was an avid reader of, of Maximum Rock and Roll that for a time Layla was the editor of, um, or an editor of. And so that leads me to where I am today. Um, you know, Boing Boing, has everybody here read Boing Boing or know about Boing Boing? So Boing Boing started as a print zine. Um, my best friend Mark Fraunfelder and his wife Carla Sinclair started it as a print zine in 1989. Um, uh, RU was a contributor. Rudy Ruckers in the audience was an early contributor. Um, and it was about computers and technology and art and fun and pranks and, and um, you know, sort of everything that the, the blog is about now. Um, and eventually, Boing Boing, you know, I, I started working on the zine in, in 92 or 93, and eventually we moved it online. It became a website, and, and you know, I think at its heyday, we were printing maybe 10,000 copies of the zine, and now the website's read by 5 million people. So, um, you know, it's amazing that, that oh, shucks. Now, I have you, I have, <laughs> I have you guys to, to, to thank for that. I mean, it just, it's, it's, you know, it's just about what, I always think about what Tim Leary said when a journalist asked him, you know, Tim's thing was, you know, you should turn on, turn on. Um, and, and a journalist said, well, Tim, what do you do after you turn on? And he said, well, you find the others. And that's what Boing Boing has really been about for me. And that's what um, the underground publishing world um, has really been about for me, um, and it's led me to connect with the people who are here on this stage who, who really changed my life in various ways and, and, and brought me to where I am today. And so I'm delighted to be here with them, and I want to give them an applause. Um, and I thought we could start um, with Vale's story because he has a very direct linkage to Allen Ginsberg. So maybe, Vale, you can tell us the the birth of, of Search and Destroy, your punk zine that eventually became research. Thank you for that introduction, David. Now, uh, I was working at City Lights Bookstore, where Layla down here still works. And um, when you worked at City Lights, one of your perks was getting to know all the real beatniks, or at least meeting them. And um, Allen Ginsberg would come to town from New York, it seemed like about once a year around Christmas time, and he'd stay for a couple weeks at Shig's apartment. He was a manager then. And so Alan was actually very friendly and, and would often take me and other indigent City Lights workers out for a free dinner. It, the, he liked the Chinese restaurant. It's still there at the corner of Broadway and Columbus. So he, Is it still good? You know, actually, or was it ever good? <laughs> it, well, free dinners are always good, David. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, I I was trying to be a poet, but I was a really bad poet. And um, I don't know, punk rock started to happen. I knew it was happening for years before it happened because it happened earlier in New York and London, like s several years earlier. I know that in I guess it was around 1975, I ordered Patti Smith's books for City Lights. 
I, I got a, into a position where I could order books. But it, it took forever for punk to start here. You know, it was, it was really late 76. Anyway, Ginsburg was in town around Christmas 77. Uh, I mean, 76, you know, around that time. And, and I, I don't know, I just read some really awful reports on punk rock in the San Francisco Chronicle and elsewhere, and it, they made me mad. And I, I told, you know, Alan I wanted to do a publication on punk. And quicker than you could believe it, he whipped out his checkbook and wrote me a check for then a staggering amount, $100. It was a lot back in 19, early 77. But it took, since I'd never published or gone to art school or anything, it took quite a while to figure out how to do it. And I, you know, I was a huge Andy Warhol fan. I thought, well, why not rip off the early interview? And this is what I was trying to do. And so in the first issue, I, there is a small interview with Allen Ginsberg of Search and Destroy. And there's also a, a photo I arranged of him with one of the earliest San Francisco punk bands called The Nuns. And so, um, so that $100, I immediately took that check to Ferlinghetti, my boss, upstairs, and he matched it, which I thought was amazing. And some other people gave me money too. And so I started Search and Destroy, and and I was, I was a huge Burroughs fan, and so I managed finally to well, actually, this, this search and destroy number 10, that has Burroughs on the cover, but I got to do more of a real book on Burroughs, more of a kind of a dream come true. And uh, so I've, I don't know, what else is there? Oh yeah, my friend uh, John Sulak over there sitting at my table he and I collaborated on a book called Modern Pagans, and that has the beatnik Diane de Prima featured in it, as well as Genesis Peoria, whom you mentioned. Right, and and we can talk about the the the, the links that you've drawn between, because um, I think it's interesting the links between William S. Burroughs and punk culture and the modern primitive movement and pranks um, as sort of this entire thing that all, all connects together and you connect the dots in various ways. Um, you know, Ron, I wanted to go to you next. Um, you know, of all of us, you know, you have been around probably the longest um, as an underground publisher, um, you know, and, and published, you know, many underground cartoonists who've gone on to, to, to you know, these are the, the, the icons of, of underground art and underground culture, and you're still at it. Can you tell your story? How did you get involved in, in publishing, um, and when was that? Uh, I got involved in publishing, uh, I guess it was back about 66 or so in Fresno. I put out a little underground newspaper called Flagrante Delicato, and our first issue had a Jesus Christ on a cross, uh, going 69 with another Jesus Christ on a cross. And the locals didn't understand it. So They uh, still don't. Maybe not, maybe not. Um, so I came to San Francisco 
in 67 to go continue on. I was already in grad school, Fresno State, came up here, and uh, ended up helping out with some poetry magazines while I was going to school there, and then we got involved with a newspaper that was coming out for the, the strike at San Francisco State. And of course, City Lights was a great place to go and to visit. And I'd already met Ginsburg early on at a peace march about 66 here in the city. We just happened to be next to him and we marched from Market Street to Kizar Stadium. So I kind of knew him and then later on I got to know Shig at City Lights. And when I began publishing underground comics, we were just trying to make some money for the Berkeley Ecology Center which had just begun in Berkeley. And a bunch of us would get together, had a lot of friends from the farm workers movement, you know, in Delano who are now living in Berkeley, and we all thought, what can we do for this ecology thing? And we thought the hottest thing going around then was underground comics had just started. We thought that was a great tool to communicate propaganda about ecology to young minds. And we were unapologetic about that, that approach. So that's how we ended up with a comic called Slow Death Funnies, which was our first one. Now, that, that was printed by uh, Don Donahue on his old uh, A.B. Dick 1250, which was also known as a shaky dick in those days. And it turned out that Donahue had published the first Zap comics because he and uh, Charles Plymel, Plymel had a printing press, and he, they knew about Crum, and, who had been in y Yarrow Stocks magazine, and Yarrow Stocks was a uh, underground newspaper out of Philadelphia. And as luck would have it, Crum showed up in San Francisco, Donahue uh, met him at a party, and they we brought him over to Plymel, and Plymel printed this thing. And oddly enough, it was in the building 2180 Bryant that I was in for 20 years, where that thing got printed. The second odd thing about it was that the printing press, I talked to Allen Ginsberg one time in the early 70s, and we were just kind of talking about those sorts of things, and he said, you know, I got that press for Plymel. I applied for a grant, and he got this printing press out of the deal. So if you need any further ties to the beats to the, <laughs> to the underground comics, I, I don't know what more you could have. It's just really close. Plymel sold the press to Donahue after the first thousand zaps. So on the back, we got one of the Plymel zaps. It says printed by Charles Plymel. And I think in blue ink and then in red ink on the next thousand is printed by Don Donahue. And then after that, it went to the print mint. So, um, and then later, eventually, Last Gasp ended up publishing the Zaps, but, uh, but that's how, how that went. It's, a, it's an amazing story. You know, um, it reminds me a little bit, you know, when, when I came out to visit and, and met um, R.U. and then Vail a little later, um, I was, was under the pretense that I was writing this story about sort of cyber culture and new tribalism and all kinds of things that I imagined in my head that were only semi-true, but it was really just I was looking for an opportunity to meet various people who had inspired me. And, um, you know, are you, you became sort of the icon of the early cyber culture, you know, the, the, the you know, uh, 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 the figurehead of this connection between psychedelics and, and computers and, and, you know, prankster culture. 
Um, but as I got to know you better, I, I realized that, I remember in our first interview you even said that, as you said that, oh, well, computers right now just happen to be the most interesting path to take or the most interesting thing to look at. And it made me realize that that really wasn't what you were about. You weren't just this, oh, computer guy. Um, it was just an interesting sort of, sort of cultural moment that you were exploring um, through Mondo 2000. And as we got to know each other, you told me a little bit more about your um, history, which, which aligns somewhat with Ron, which ties almost to the, to the peace movement of the 60s and yippies and this kind of thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how that led you to, to becoming a publisher and an author? Sure. Um, so I, I think the first thing that ever really tore my head off as far as a piece of writing or a piece of reading uh, was Howl by Allen Ginsberg, which I read at about 13 or 14 years old. It was about 1966. I hadn't even heard of hippies yet. Um, and Where you know, were you living? I was, well, I, I had just moved to a small upstate town in New York called Binghamton, but before that I'd lived in West Islip, Long Island, um, which was like the most vanilla place in the world. Um, or I suppose there were a lot of vanilla places in the world at that point. Um, and, there you know, still I, are. I, I read that book and it's just sort of, it's amazing to me now to look back and uh, remember how that impacted me and how I understand, I understood it despite not having any of the experiences that he had spoken about as this, this incredible ability to evoke something in somebody where you would read that poem and you get to the end of the, and you go, yeah, that's me. Even though it's like, I was a kid in, you know, the suburbs, they, there, were, there weren't any Negro streets at dawn where you could get an angry fix. There <laughs> maybe one house in West Island, you know, and you couldn't get a fix there. So, you know, I, uh, so, I mean, that was sort of the first thing that really ripped me open. And then in 1969, I published a, a small uh, news, newsletter in my high school. I was about 16 or 17. Um, and it was winter of 69, or, or no, it was spring of 69, and you know, 1968 had just happened. And I wanted in on that because that was such an incredible energy that had happened uh, during that revolutionary year. Um, and that's always stuck with me. I've always been more of a 68er than a 67er, even though I wound up publishing psychedelic magazines that, that sort of had more of a 67 vibe combined with the a hint of 77 in punk. Um, but th that was always my, my influence. Um, and the beats were always, I mean, I, I wrote a book called Counterculture Through the Ages uh, at the beginning of this century. And I mean, it, throughout all of history, it seems, there have been uh, uh, countercultures and, and subcultures that were subversive and antic. And they always reached for whatever tools they could find to express themselves, you know, either for the heck of it or, or uh, you know, to, to uh, subvert the culture and so forth. And, and the beats were just the first manifestation of that that I saw. And, and you know, the hippie and punk all, all sort of came out of that. Um, and then, then, you know, I started High Frontiers. Um, by then I was very much under the influence of Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson and, and, and uh, their ideas of neurologic and psychedelics and futurism and, and all that stuff. Uh, but a big influence at that point was William Burroughs. Um, and I think I, when, we, 
when we came out in 1984 with our first, I think we, we actually were a little bit snotty about the beast uh, as being sort of, you know, uh, uh, not real contemporary, except for Burroughs, who was, you know, super contemporary. And, and Burroughs is just, it's kind of amazing. He was, at, you know, he had that science fiction edge. He had that space is the place edge. He had that. There's a great Burroughs quote I like to use because I'm, I'm also a card-carrying futurist. Yeah. Um, and he, he said, when you cut into the present, the future bleeds out. Yeah, he had all that cut-up stuff going on and, uh, you know, sampling and uh, all that stuff. So, I mean, he was, when I first took out a, an advertisement looking for people to uh, join me in creating High Frontiers, which became Monda 2000, the advertisers had people who were into Timothy Leary and William Burroughs. So, I mean, that was, that was the origin there. Finding the others. That's great. Um, Layla, so, you know, for those who, who I, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with Maximum Rock and Roll, um, as the zine scene has ebbed and flowed um, since the 60s, but since I've been involved with it since the, since the 80s, you know, Maximum Rock and Roll has always been there. It's always felt the same. It's always been just densely packed and, and you know, full of, of reviews and, and information. Um, and as much as it, as it, you know, specifically, you know, reviewed records and these kinds of things, and would be great, great information that way, um, it embodied, I think, um, a culture. Um, how did you get involved in, in, in that zine? Well, um, I moved to the Bay Area in 2003. From where? From London, where I grew up. Mm. Um, I'd lived here, my family are American, so I've sort of lived here on and off throughout my life, but I officially moved to the Bay Area in 2003, and I had a really horrific job at a call center um, where I had to wear a headset and call people that had voted Democrat in 1932 and see if I could get money from them for this kind of nefarious, slippery nonprofit um, that doesn't exist anymore because they were very sketchy, but it was essentially trying to get credit card numbers from people for um, some election campaign. And one of the other people there um, volunteered at Maximum, which started out as a radio show in 1977. Um, actually, it was a radio show before that on KPFA, but it officially became Maximum Rock and Roll in 1977. Um, and one of the things that is a disadvantage of growing up in England is college radio doesn't exist. So you don't get to have a radio show when you go to college, um, which it seemed to me as a kid being into punk rock, everyone in America sort of had their own radio show. Oh, we and did. Yeah, all, everyone. And um, that I was, I mean, I've been a completely consumed by music and DIY culture since I was 13. And this guy at this horrific call center job basically said, oh, the only girl DJ just quit. You should show up and take her place. So I did. And that's essentially how Maximum Rock and Roll works. It's like this conglomeration of volunteers. Um, sometimes it's 50 people, sometimes it's 100, um, and it's an international publication, so people send in things from all over the world, but anyone can do it. There's no sort of, um, you don't have to be a professional. It's a, the most amateur thing imaginable. Anyone can interview a band, anyone can write a scene report, and anyone can be a DJ. 
So um, that was how I got my start, was actually DJing the radio show, which still exists. I, th I think that's what all of us are, professional amateurs, um, at, wh at what we do. Vale, you know, um, also sort of growing out of, directly out of the, the punk scene, um, what were those connections you saw between, you know, beat culture and, and you know, uh, uh, punk music? Because as I said, for me, what was more interesting from punk was the kinds of things that you were covering in research and, and search and destroy more so than the actual music. Woo. Let me preface all this by say, saying that I also, I'm older than RU, but when I was very young, Hal was this major, major, major breakthrough influence in my small town. I had a beatnik uncle who was trying to subvert me. He brought me Hal, and he brought me a Life magazine featuring the so-called beeps. And, and what I got from there was, was actually the most eye-popping idea was, that, was, was the idea that you didn't have to work. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I do work a lot. You, as you yourself know, you work a lot more when you work for yourself than any job. But... Um, it was just the idea, of, plus the idea of the wisdom of the East, you know, meditations then and all that. Those were beatnik-introduced ideas to me, at least. And um, so, so, yeah, it was kind of cool that years later, Ginsburg, you know, just, I tell you, he was so generous. But how did that relate, how did that relate to punk? How did, how did you, how did that beat culture, that Zen culture, um, dovetail with what was going on in... in it's the in minimalism, I think. I mean, I mean the, the, the negation of, of most of the cultural conditioning, the control process, actually. That's what I got from, from Burroughs really early. And, and if anyone who was there in the... I only know the first two years of punk because that's all I know. But anyone who was there knows it was, I'd say, almost more important than DIY, do-it-yourself, is the notion of black humor. Because if you just look at the way people dressed and listened to the song lyrics and looked at the posters, I mean, that was the, at the collage rip-off posters of corporate images. You know, that was the ethos, I think, black humor. And I don't know why people don't seem to know that now. And that, well, that also connects to, to the comics that you were publishing as well, Ron. I mean, that was, you know, it, some of it was laugh out loud, belly laughter funny, but a lot of it was cultural commentary, especially in the early zaps. Last gasp, I just realized it's an ecological name. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> how that happened was as we got the comic book more together, we had to have a name for the comic, and so it settled down on slow death funnies or last gasp eco comics or eco funnies and i remember we finally decided that slow death would be a better comic title and then i was left with last gasp I said, well hell i need a name for the company so that's how the name for the company happened <laughs> but in answer to the, the connections um i you know in I'm going back for my 55th high school reunion uh, in September in Fresno, and I, as we were talking here, I'm remembering that the summer of 58, uh, 
couple of girls from my high school took off to North Beach, uh, down at Gallon Camp, where are you? And uh, ended up, and people would say all summer, so what happened to Donna and her friend? They said, oh, they went beat. You know, they went beat. I wish somebody would say that about me. <laughs> Thanks, bud. Call me an ambulance. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, I think the veil thing is it just seemed like it went kind of smoothly. All of a sudden, there were a lot of people with berets and wearing black all the time. And uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of beatniks suddenly popped up at the, like, right around the end. And then you'd see them in coffee houses because coffee houses were a cool place to go. Uh, a lot of us were too young for, to really hang out in the bars yet, and uh, we were trying to figure out what our brains were for, and those are great places, but the beats were there. There'd be people reading things you'd never heard of, you never talked about, and it was very stimulating, and then there'd be like, you know, I mean, really get down, <laughs> the stereotypes were perfect. People did play pongos, <laughs> and they got high, and they wore dark glasses, and... Uh, you know, the early days, as stereotypical as they were, were very important because it, it forced you to get off the path. It, you know, if you wanted to learn about this stuff, you had to really change your basic behaviors and this sort of in, intertwined. So, and I, I think that the spiritual side that came through there, there was like, you know, there were tea drinkers and there were booze drinkers. There's a lot of, you know, the alcohol divide seemed to separate the the beats and the mountain climbers tended to hang on to the red wine, and the intellectuals went to the harder liquor and drugs, if, if memory serves me right. You know, I wanted to actually um, move us into the, the present a little bit, um, because publishing has, has changed so dramatically. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned my own story being involved in desktop publishing, and, and you know, Boing Boing starting as a print scene, and, and it came to the point where it was just so expensive to print it, and then the web happened, we just started putting stuff online. Um, instead, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it, w it was primarily a financial decision, frankly, um, driven by the cost of printing and the fact that we were spending so much time chasing distributors down for $12, um, which was not last gasp, mind you. <laughs> Do I still owe you 12 bucks? <laughs> it wasn't you. <laughs> You can probably guess, but um, I'd like to get a sense from you. Are you, um, as someone who was so involved in the in the um, you know uh, early cyber culture, um, how you see publishing um, in zines? How's it changed since since you know the birth of the web? I mean, obviously now it's much easier, but right. No, I'm I'm, I'm full of regret. Um, Actually, I'm not entirely full of regret. It's, a, it's an ambiguous uh, sort of treat uh, that uh, now we can find pretty much anything we want and anything we're interested in, and we're sort of overwhelmed with the amount of stuff out there. And what we've learned to do, uh, I mean, when we were doing Monda 2000, it was the beginning of the, of the digital age and High Frontiers before that and so forth, and throughout my entire experience of being sort of an alternative culture person, what we did is we went and seek things out with a great deal of enthusiasm. And like I said, I'd, I'd said I'd lived in upstate New York in Binghamton. We used to drive three hours to New York City just to go to the bookstores and magazine stores 
because we couldn't always find Punk Magazine and research. And sometimes they were there and sometimes they weren't. So we'd, we'd go all the way there in New York Rocker. I mean, just all these different uh, semiotics. You know, we'd, and it was that kind of seeking out. And now it's, it, the entire psychology is different. It was going and getting, and now it's weeding stuff out, pushing stuff away, saying, I'm not going to pay attention to this, or, or this is great, I'll tweet about it, but I'll never read it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which I have to admit, I do myself, right, you know? Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's a weird sort of mix of, of, of things, and I, I just, I go to, when I go to look at magazine stands, it's depressing, I, I don't see anything. Unfortunately, I don't see maximum rock and roll in the stores that I go to, but you know I don't see anything. I I don't feel like people are putting their hearts and souls into the magazines that I see on on the magazine stands. I think it, magazines have sort of become desultory. Um, I, and I think that's and true. then on the other hand, it's like Omni is rebooting online, and it's yeah. it's cool. You know, it's nice. It's a I nice think, thing. I think what you said is true, but I also think that, or I like to think anyway, that the more time we spend in these virtual mediated experiences online. Um, the more we have this desire for sort of authentic, physical, um, you know, objects. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's true, but I also think that, you know, the idea of, of, you know, being able to support yourself as an independent publisher by printing a thousand one hundred dollar books and hoping, I mean, a thousand, who's going to buy that? Maybe five hundred, hundred dollar books that are beautifully designed and have tipped in original artwork and these kinds of things, which are the artifacts that people really want. Um, you know, I don't know how that's, how that business model, you know, works. How does it, how does it work, Ron? I mean, you know, you, you, you've, you've, you've put all it's your a, bets, you're on paper. It's a secret, it's a secret. How does it work? Uh, it, it works harder and harder, I'll tell you. I think we've hit a bottom in the, the decline of bookstores. Last year in America, uh, this is a positive figure. There were 68 more new book, more bookstores than there were the previous year for the first time in almost a decade of a decline of bookstores. Uh, part of this is because borders went out and uh, the bookstores they'd driven out of business, those needs in those communities surfaced as new bookstores. And there's more open. We've we've seen maybe another 20 or 30 bookstores um, this year that we didn't were not around before. And also we're extending to different people. We go into boutiques, and uh, it's kind of like when I started distributing comics, underground comics. I had no idea what to do, and uh, so I just started going around. And probably being dumb about that was better because not only were there bookstores, but Printment and Ripoff Press, who were the big other comic companies of the time, refused to allow me to go into any of the stores they were selling to, like City Lights or the Tides or Moe's over in Berkeley. So I had to find new places. So I found, you know, uh, leather shops, uh, beauty parlors, just about any place that could get the money over the counter. I'd put, go in with them. Things were so cool and hip that people would say, sure, let's try it out because it was new in, in a different way. I, Not, think that, I think that continued. I, I bought my first copies of research books um, at a record store. That's how Maximum operates, too. It's like we um, have the philosophy that we want kids to be able to find the magazine at 
like in the olden days, their local tower records. But we also um, try and find the small esoteric places that we know people hang out at, like skate shops or tattoo parlors. Or it's like you try and find their anarchist bookstores. Like you find the basically the whole point of the counterculture is to kind of exist under the radar. So you try and figure out, like you want to get the kids who don't know about how to get under the radar yet and give them the directions. That's inter it's interesting if you think about it because that's different than the way most businesses operate, which is the sense of, you know, you align with your vertical, you know, whatever your subject is and you want to be in the shop that sells, you know, all of the books or all of the, you know, uh, uh, CD players or all of the computers or something like that, whereas your approach to independent publishing is to actually align with the culture, not with other products of that kind. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, one of the things that is actually cool about working at City Lights Books is um, I have one day that I work in the publishing offices and there's a shelf that has a lot of the kind of old esoteric documents from the olden days and there'll be sort of just mimeographs that Lawrence or Shig made um, that they just decided to do and they it's not like a professional book it's just a piece of paper with a sort of a phrase on it or it's a like Lawrence has one thing where he actually printed over another document his own poetry so it's sort of like five different things going on at once and um, every time I see something like that, I think about how that ties into what we're doing and how we're trying to sort of, like, you have an idea and you just kind of try and get it out into the world as immediately. And um, that's one of the things that print culture allows you to do. Um, you know, the internet has, of course, opened up resources for Kid, like lonely kids in suburbs no longer have to drive three hours to New York to find solace. You know they can just go on the internet, but it's kind of this vast cavalcade of information. And one of the cool things about doing something like Maximum is you can kind of put all this, the, you can like, you know, there are punk bands in Burma now. And you can just put all this information in one place so people don't have to go to like 50,000 different websites and find it. And you can kind of combine that esoteric, strange, one-off mimeograph that is kind of disposable but kind of permanent because you can actually touch it as an actual object, but it's also, you know, maybe someone's just gonna recycle it. And you can be the punk Bible, but you can also be disposable. And that's one of the things that I think is so cool about underground culture in general, you know? It's kind of, a secret system of signs that you you make so people can find the way outside of corporate culture. Yeah, Vale, tell me how how I mean you you know for people who don't read Vale's excellent monthly newsletter e newsletter, um, but I if you do, you know that you have sort of this love hate mostly hate relationship with with technology and, and digital culture in many ways. Um, well, yes, <laughs> I agree. It's I don't know how many emails I have from you that say I hate technology in response to a million different not things. Not totally, exactly, precisely that, but, but I, I don't know. I'm just an inveterate people watcher wherever I go, and 
It just really disturbs me that probably almost everyone in this room spends this incredible amount of time every day just looking at the screen and pecking away these pretty much probably pretty inconsequential in the long term little emails and things. I mean, they're not writing Finnegan's Wake or something. And um, I, it just worries me because I myself am a total space case in front of any of these devices. I mean, it's, it could be eight hours later, I realized, geez, I just watched 100 YouTube videos, and they're all great. And the thing is, there is an awful lot of really, to me, compelling content for free, and I used to make money putting out content, and it's, it's not the same world, that's for sure. I, 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 and I agree with you, I think it's challenging. I mean, you know, Boing Boing is, you know, um, you know, for for you know, uh, a, a completely unprofessional and eccentric uh, 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 business, as Fast Company called it. You know, we're 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 doing well, but it's it's um, it's hard. It's tough because there is so much. If we start a Boing Boing today, I have no doubt it would be you know it would have ten readers because it, you know there's so much competition for you know engagement and excitement and, and you know connection between people and ideas and, and stories and as somebody like me who's you know m my background is in professional journalism I worry as well you know how is how how, how will that be supported um, you know in, in in you know the coming years yeah there won't be any more Watergate books published that's for sure in other words that kind of really diligent thorough research takes money there's no money for that anymore. I mean, everyone says that. There's just no budget for really in-depth, you know, I don't know, what do you call it? Scandal-mongering or something? on a Muckraking or, or, or even deep cultural reporting, right? I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to know when, when, you know, uh, uh, a lot of time is spent on a, on a deep feature article um, that somebody's really put a lot of effort and their heart and soul into, and it gets, you know, half the number of views as, you know, a funny picture of a cat, right? And, and I think that's probably always been the case, right? But, but because you have all this information in front of you, it's, it's, you're faced with it all the time, sort of, you know, Information you. overload. I remember, I thought I was the first person to print that phrase in the Industrial Culture Handbook. But boy, is it true now. It's the opposite problem. And you ain't seen nothing yet, let me tell you. <laughs> I was just thinking in terms of investigative journalism and, and, and deep reportage that, I mean, now you can get a gazillion stolen government files that reveal just about everything, but government files are so boring that nobody, nobody wants to go through them and, and you know, put them that's together in a that's way that... That's because it's WikiLeaks files or cute cat pictures. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, you, you go, yeah, Julian Assange, well, let me... Uh, you know, read this other thing instead. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a mixed bag. I mean, in terms of, like, will there ever be another sort of deep rebellion? Will there ever be uh, something that is significantly different that appeals to a lot of people rather than a whole zillions of different subcultures, I think would be an interesting question. It seems, it seems doubtful, and, and what will it be? Will it, will it work? through the net and through the technology, or will it be a bunch of people who, who uh, 
uh, decide to turn their backs on it, and, and will that be the next thing? It's really, it's sort of hard to tell, you know, if that can happen, and if it were to happen, what would it be? Because uh, everything seems to be trivialized at this point, just by, just by inflation, just by quantity. You know, I, I often ask, um, and I want to ask sort of, you know, if any of you have a comment on this, you know, in this um, digital culture where information moves so quickly and news moves so quickly, unfiltered for better or for worse, can an underground culture even really exist? Um, can there be one? Can there be an, an underground? Can anymore? a mainstream culture really exist? Can a culture really I would think so. I, you know, uh, humans are nefarious by nature. You know, so why not? Why not? You know, I'm sure there's a billion, not a billion. You know, lots of cells of people out there already who are uh, taking their own private uh, ideas and putting, you know, in some strange codex of information to each other. Even across public airwaves, they're still communicating and still you know, plotting for their own uh, interests. I don't, I don't see that that's ever going to change. Um, although this WikiLeaks things got me thinking, I, the other day I got back a bunch of uh, 15 different government agencies I'd asked to find out my status with. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so one by one they came back with, no, we never heard of you. And uh, but, they, but we have now. No, no, and then, the, well, the, this one, uh, yeah, well, this one from CIA was kind of funny because they said, we cannot say whether this is true or not, basically, but we have absolutely no information, or maybe we do, but perhaps at some future date we can find it or not. And, you know, it kind of like went on like this in this, like, 1984 doublespeak kind of thing. I think, like, after a while, I just... And then, and then the, the corker was I got one back from the FBI that said, oh, yeah, we, we had some, but we destroyed them in 93. What? The FBI destroyed files? Really? Holy cow. Who knew? Clinton took them home. <laughs> well, I think to have a, an underground, I, I, I like, I like, there's certain things I like that are real, like a relationship with a young lady or a, or a lady of any age, for that matter. I mean, I don't want that virtual. I'm sorry. I want to be in the same room with that human. A lot, if I, you know, preferably. And um, I just think it's, I don't know. Well, okay, when I came to San Francisco, it was this long ago, I knew I could go to a few beatnik coffee houses and I would meet my people. And I knew I could go to City Lights and get a job and I would definitely meet my people. And, and then, I suppose in the hippie days when that happened, well, you just moved to near Hayton-Ashbury. It's as simple as that. And then, of course, the so-called summer of love, it was killed by 100,000 people moving here expecting free places to stay and free food. And, and then, free love. And free, oh yeah, and drugs, that's right. And then in the punk days, there was only, we were lucky we had one club here for two years. That made it really easy to like, if you, were for some reason drawn to what you thought punk was. I mean, that couldn't be easier. And, and yet, I've said this before, at the end of two years, I don't think there were more than two to 300 max people 
really committed to punk rock. You know, like they, uh, you know, they, they were like tourists, you know, just like they were in the hippie days, like weekend hippies or weekend punks. But there weren't t two years, only two to 300 people, but they're all doing something. They're all in a band or making posters or at least loaning their car to a band or yeah, but it was like a real fa extended family thing. Well, it's building a cultural commons almost, where everyone contributes something that they might have in surplus, um, because they're getting something of value that's not monetary. Yeah, it's not done for the profit motive. That's for uh, sure. Certainly not. <laughs> no, <laughs> quite the opposite. <laughs> You're in there to lose money, but you didn't care. You just hope you lost as little as possible, I guess. Ron. Uh, I, I was giving Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead a ride out to the airport in Fresno after they played there uh, in the 60s. And, um, on the way out, Jerry asked me, he said, so uh, how many hippies are in Fresno? And I drove a few more blocks, and I said, uh, 47. <laughs> and there was another long pause, and he says, oh, Okay. <laughs> You know, um, I do get excited, though, a little bit while I see things like, um, you know, Vail, when you're mentioning the things that aren't replaceable by technology, and, and that's, I think, one of the things that excites me about the, the maker culture, do-it-yourself culture, as it's become known now, which is this shift from, you know, what we saw with desktop publishing, where people were having the tools and technology to publish zines and make flyers and produce albums, and now they have similar tools to, you know, design and create and make objects and alter technology in new ways. Um, and, and I find that exciting, because I think that, that that ability to, or that, that desire to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty um, is something that makes us human. Um, and I don't think that technology and virtual experiences can replace that. Oh, I, I'd like to have my own 3D printer. I mean, except that... <laughs> I, I'm afraid of it, actually. <laughs> there, there's like too much stuff to redo. There's so much really bad design out there, and there's so much, so many items that could be improved. But is that underground? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things about um, punk is it's like people sort of talk about it ending at a certain time. But I think of it in the same way that something like hip-hop works, where um, it's something that anyone can do. So you don't necessarily have to be... Like, there are kids in Indonesia who are part of a huge punk community that are sort of maybe just going to internet cafes and sending MP3s to each other and doing things on MySpace but they're utilizing technology in a way that we sort of take for granted. Mm -hmm. But um, punk rock, I mean, especially in the way that Maximum views it, is an anti-corporate, um, self-made thing that you do um, on your own terms, outside of corporate interests. And I think that that will always exist because people will always need that. It's like there are bands now who maybe came out of the punk scene. It's like, um, it used to be the big sort of issue was bands signing to major labels, whereas now it's sort of bands being branded and 
getting corporate sponsorships from companies like Scion, um, which is a car company that will pay your gas money if you'll uh, carry a few of their weird branded items on your merch table. And it's sort of, people think that's a great deal because, hey man, I don't have to do anything. I just get this, uh, all I have to do is like take pictures of some of the kids that come to our shows with like Scion baseball hats and then I get my gas money paid. And it's like this weird sort of corporate indenter. I can't pronounce that word because I'm <laughs> nervous. But it's it's just don't so be nervous. We're so your friends. It's strange to me because the whole point of underground culture and counterculture is to exist in opposition to these companies and to not put yourself up for sale and to create something on your own terms. And like when Vale was involved in the punk scene. It's like punk rock is a possibility. Like punk rock can be the Sex Pistols, but it can also be the Screamers. It can also be, there are um, some bands that sound like traditional rock bands, and then there are some bands that sound like they're falling apart and they shouldn't have recorded anything, but they did. Your comment about Sion reminds me that uh, in case anyone's interested, Boing Boing's having a huge uh, live on stage event uh, next Sunday, sponsored by Ford. <laughs> Thumbs the down. cool hunters have triumphed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd like to open it up with some questions from the audience, actually, if we could. Anyone? Ken Goldberg, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, that's actually a really good question. Well, let's start with that. Um, he had a question about the role of photography as a documentation of beat culture um, and how it relates to the work done here. And I think that actually gets directly to the new book that, that Ruby just put out. You want to comment on that? Well, especially now, but, but photography didn't used to be considered an art form. I mean, I was alive when that happened. And it's now become one. But, you know, it used to be kind of expensive to buy cameras. I don't really remember when it became affordable. I, I wouldn't say it was until almost 79, maybe 80. It's just like, you were talking about zines from the 60s on, but I, I don't remember many zines from the 60s. And it's because I, in my, I lived through all that, and there were no cheap Xerox machines till available to the public, you know, at a reasonable price. I don't remember it happening much before 1975 at the earliest. And so, I mean, technology, unfortunately, is, is kind of can have a role in shaping culture. And, you know, punk rock was, as I knew it, was definitely a middle class movement. It was not a lower class movement. But I think, but I think the documentation I think is really interesting that he brings up about photography because, um, you know, right now there's Ruby Ray's book who did a lot of photography in the early research books. She has a new book out compiling her photographs of the punk scene. Um, there's a, a exhibit at the Met in New York um, that's uh, punk and fashion um, that has a lot of really amazing. Um, photographs as well. So there's this um, definite connection, I think, towards, towards documenting these cultures. Well, my point in saying punk was middle class was that 
it really, you, it was almost a bit of an elite thing to go buy a Nikon or like a camera back then. There weren't a million choices like now. That's pretty recent. Well, now everybody has a and camera. I disagree. Uh, I think you could get a camera if you needed one. Just the level and quality that you needed to find. It was the film that was expensive and the developing that was expensive. Right. And if you learned how to do that in a lab, you could do it pretty cheaply. Uh, but a lot of people wouldn't take that extra step. Most people uh, would. I think, I think that the photos, well, that was very important. Uh, I was kind of pissed about the Beats and the Hippies movement because every time you turned around, somebody was writing a book who was not there when it happened. You know, it really pissed me off. And so when the punk scene was happening, I said, I want to publish books about the punks now that we can. And we did some uh, Hardcore California and uh, Escapees, F. Stop Fitzgerald's books, and uh, a number of other you know, publications we did at that time that did well and, and had a long, long shelf life. And, um, but also back then, it was a whole different marketing world. You could print 5,000, 10,000 or something, you'd eventually sell out of them. And you'd go back to press. And it wasn't like uh, that didn't have a shelf life of an egg then, you know. It was a much okay. different thing. And so the photos that captured that era were by the people who were part of that era during that time. And that's, you know, I think very important. Just like Alan's photos in here are extremely uh, revealing as to who and people were in the times and whatnot. Um, I yeah, thought I mean, those are personal photos. He wasn't. I mean, I, obviously I, later I he was a artist. little bit, a little bit famous. But but I mean, those were you know, taking pictures of his friends <laughs> when they're hanging out. You know, um, which is a different different approach. And he took me, by the way. But I never got to see the print. But at least, but you know, yeah, Alan, William Burroughs took pictures too. I mean, there's a, probably a lot of photos still left to be uncovered, you know, but I still don't think that everyone had that training to take, I mean, what did we, I guess the cheap camera would have been really bad, those Kodak brownies, you know, but it, it was pretty much a, a pretty, it was an investment to take pictures, I think, up until 79 or 80 when suddenly these $100 Olympus cameras started coming out. That's the way I remember it, at least. You, know, you really only need a couple of photographers to document a, a scene. So, I mean, it, it winds up not being that expensive because you have somebody like F. Scott Fitzgerald documenting. Or, um, and, uh, and those pictures, particularly from punk, were so evocative. You almost didn't even have to read about it. You could, you, could, you know, when, when punk first started happening, you'd get a copy of Punk Magazine or New York Rocker or whatever and see the photos, and it... it you know, it, it spoke of, you know, really a rebellion that was beyond the pale of, uh, of what I had seen even, even you know, in, t in the political days of the late 60s. It was this whole other thing. Um, and the photos expressed it almost without having to hear the words. I don't know. I'm a big fan of words, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> photos pay even less than words these days, I think, unfortunately. Uh, anyone have any other questions? I think that that whole Burning Man, as far as I know, from a theoretical standpoint, to me, came out of that book. Um, 
TAZ, temporary atomic zones. Hakim Bay's book. Hakim, yeah. I mean, that, at least that was a big light bulb for me, that you could have these itinerant underground locations and move them around, and that you didn't have to get all those fucking permits and all that. And, and it was just a thought that I think Burning Man people took that thought. And, or it was at least, it was theory in a book. And that made it more easy for people to start applying it. It's in a book, T-A-Z. Everyone I knew was reading it when it came out. It came out quite a while ago. As somebody who spends their life online, um, you know, Boing Boing is about... Um, you know, increasingly creating original content as we can afford to do so and commissioning original articles and things as we used to do in the zine. But of course, our, our core has been as sort of this filter of finding things that we think are interesting online and putting them in Boing Boing as our cabinet of curiosity. And after doing that for so long, I don't feel that there's actually any short, and I was a Fact Sheet 5 reader too, and I don't actually feel that there's any shortage of, you know, these sort of micro-publishing, you know, obsessive, passion-driven, niche um, voices. I actually think that there are um, uh, more than ever, and I think that the challenge is, and it's going to be increasing, is finding them. Um, because there is so much, because there are so many choices. And I, and I feel like the, the only way I, I've been able to deal personally as somebody whose job it is essentially to, to be a filter or be a lens on this culture is to not worry that I haven't read everything, not worry that I'm behind on my RSS feed, um, not worry that I've elected not to use Twitter at all, I've never tweeted ever. Um, I have no Facebook account um, for reasons that we can get into separately. But um, I don't feel bad about that because I get enough. And I think that that's the only way at, that we're going to be able to deal with this kind of information overload is to continue to find and seek out the things that turn us on um, and not worry about missing things that um, you know, that also might turn us on. I, I mean, as somebody who sort of developed my passions in, in 1968, obscurity depresses me, actually. You know, I mean, all the marginalization, even the, the Taz idea, the temporary autonomous zone, to me was a kind of giving up. It was like, we, we can't take over, but we can have these moments. We can have these small communities and so forth. And, um, I was I was always sort of a takeover kind of guy, and that's where and and Mondo that's where, was trying to do that in 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 the '90s. And that's um, where Tim, you know Tim Leary shifted from you know was a big influence on you and I both shifted from this turn on tune in take over turn on tune in drop out to turn on tune in and take over. I don't know if it's a good idea. It's just it's just you know. Uh, and it, did it, it work? Does, it does tend to depress me. That, that, and I I think yeah I think there's a huge amount of microcultures, I mean, just microculture upon microculture. But then yeah, you, I, you have something like um, Pussy Riot, yeah. where they refuse to play sh shows um, that you have to pay money for, and they'll only do things in churches and government squares, and sort of, they create their own disturbances. And, you know, they've 
like there's a huge movement of people that have responded to that. It's like there's always going to be something that happens, like absolutely that throws things in a different direction. Absolutely, and and now you can find those things more easily than you ever have been able to before. And now you can watch those Pussy Riot videos online instead of just the hundred people who are there to see them play in the church. Yeah, I th I think it's kind of sad though that they're. I mean, the only lucky way I get to keep in touch with what's going on is that I always have s several interns in their early 20s. <laughs> Thank Jehu for that. And, um, and so I know about all these Oakland warehouse concerts and all kinds of things I absolutely can't, don't have the energy to go to anymore. But you're damn but happy they're happening. Yeah, I'm glad they're going on. And I think everything just has got to become more personal and more personally involving as an antidote to this crazy new takeover by computers of humans in which so much of your time is in front of a screen. I just can't, I, I'm not a fan of that. There were a couple more questions, I think, or several more, I think, but Sylvia, did you have one? The wonderful thing about punk rock is that so many people that started their own little punk rock record store all over the world, and they'd order my stuff. And so I would be sometimes be some of the only, you know, paper print publications in the record store. And and then thank goodness for Tower Records. They really I've gotten thousands of letters. I found you in Tower Records. Tower Records was just amazing. And I was just lucky to catch a wave, the last wave of print, I think, where I could almost, I mean, I hate to talk about myself, but I could have a global influence. And, you, and I wouldn't even know it except for all the letters I got. You know, and I'm glad I reached you. So I don't know if you can do that today is what I'm saying. Ron? When Lollapalooza began, one of the things we did was put a bookstore yep. in Lollapalooza. And we went around with a school bus. Uh, and it was one of the more amazing uh, times to go out and you'd be behind a, you know, like, uh, you know, 20 feet of tables full of books. And you get all these kids out there who'd spent the entire summer, you know, bucking hay or something to get enough money to go to the one big rock concert that was near them, and they were like dumbfounded because usually they were loners, and, and they'd finally see something on the table that was like absolutely identified them as being not alone in the world. And they'd pick it up, and they'd start to read. And I had my most fun, though, with one of Dale's books because um, it would, they'd open it up and I'd say, whatever you do, don't look at page 27. The, the penis cut in half in modern yes, primitives? Yeah. I'd say, do not, I wouldn't tell them what it was. I'd say, whatever you do, do not look at page 27, please. And of course, they immediately turned to page 27 and would shriek and fall away and buy the goddamn book. So, um, great. and also angry women took off this on Lollapalooza. Those are probably my two most some of my most influential books, besides Industrial Culture. Industrial Culture didn't sell that well, but it, I, I, it seemed like everyone who bought it back then started a noise band. Take uh, one last question and uh, 
there is one. Otherwise, I think folks will be hanging out. Um, and of course, there's books for uh, sale here. And um, I'll autograph some. anything if anyone buys anything. Um, and I recommend you check out, um, of course, all the books by Last Gasp. Are you where can you be found these days? Um, well, you can uh, follow my Twitter, my tweets, my whatever the hell it is, at uh, Steal This Singularity, at Steal This Singularity. Just look, just look for Steal This Singularity on Twitter. Just Google Are You Serious Twitter. Awesome. And you're not with uh, Maximum Rock and Roll. You're writing for them, though, still, and you have a blog as well. Yeah. I, um, Maximum Rock and Roll can be found online at MaximumRockandRoll.com, but you can also find it at um, Needles and Pens. And find is, you where? Oh, I, uh, behind City the Lights. counter at City Lights. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Thank you guys so much. Um, it's been great. Thank you. And thank you to Gravity. She's, she's a zine publisher, too, so ask her about it. Yeah, thanks to Gravity Goldberg and the CJM. <laughs>